Indeed, great is thy faithfulness. Thank you to Jason and the team on stage leading and to Peter for that song. Uh, you know, I was kind of thinking about it and chatting with Jennifer just before the, the service today. This is the first time I'm preaching on a Sunday since the beginning of March last year. So it feels kind of crazy and, and just weird. It feels right, I'll say that, but it still feels a little weird to be here on a Sunday preaching live. And I know I can say great is thy faithfulness because just as I am here now preaching live, very soon I know we will be together again in this building worshiping together. But until that time comes, we will keep on doing what we can do in this way. When, when was the last time you felt homesick? I realize some of you are going to go, Brian, it's 2021. We haven't been out of our homes since 2020. Uh, we don't feel homesick. We feel sick of home. Now, I get that. I understand that. Uh, but when was the last time you felt homesick? Your know, homesickness is that feeling that each one of us have at different points in our lives. It might start as a young child going off to summer camp. Uh, and it's all fun. It's all exciting. And, and you're there making new friends, having new experiences. But there comes a point where you kind of think to yourself, well, I miss my mom. I, I miss my home-cooked meals. I miss the security of home. And so we start to experience this homesickness. Maybe for some of us, we only really feel homesick when we begin in university. Uh, maybe we go off to a different city, a different place, and we're staying in a res. And yes, it's fun. It's exciting. We're making new friends. We're having all the experiences of learning and, and the fun of university. Uh, but there comes a point even there where we say the same. I miss my mom. I, I miss the home-cooked meals. I miss the safety and the security of home. You know, when I think about being homesick, you know, we're coming up, my family and I are coming up to being in Canada for five years. Uh, that's coming up in just a couple of months' time. And in the last five years, we've been back home to visit family, parents and grandparents, once. Uh, and we understand what it means to feel homesick. But maybe for some of us, it's not so much homesick for a place. Maybe for many of us, we feel homesick not for a place, but for a time. You know, nowadays, as we're stuck at home and maybe not with family around, we miss those days gone by. We miss uh, being a child, having that safety and security, you know, not a care in the world that, that kind of accompanies childhood. Or maybe we miss those days when the kids were still young and they were at home and there was joy and laughter and love. And, and now that those children have moved out and, and we're kind of home alone, we miss that time. Maybe sadly for some of us, that feeling of that homesick for a time is because a spouse has passed away and, and we're alone now and we, we miss that, we feel for that, and we have that feeling of homesickness. You know, there's nothing wrong with feeling homesick. It, it's a natural, normal emotion and experience. We all feel homesick from time to time. The problem with homesickness is when we dwell on it, when we kind of let it absorb us and, and kind of consume everything, well, then it begins to rob us. It robs us of joy. But it also robs us of being aware and attuned to the present time, of living in the here and now. We lose sight of what could be. Now, as much as I've spoken about homesickness, I'm going to kind of shift gear and switch gear. I'm going to circle back to homesickness. I want you to keep that in mind in a moment. We'll kind of pick that up again. 
But as you heard, as you've seen the pictures and heard from the conversation, today we're starting a new series as we work through the book of Daniel. And now I realize some of you might go, well, why Daniel? And what's the importance of a book written thousands of years ago by some guy in the middle of some place? I don't know. What, you know. What value is that? Daniel is a crucial book for us to engage with. Because Daniel, even though it's called Daniel and it's written by a guy called Daniel, isn't really a story about Daniel. The book of Daniel is a story about God. And it's a story about how God is in control. God is on the throne. And that's that image in the background that we're going to see from time to time. It's this image of, well, who's on the throne in my life? Who reigns? Who is sovereign? For many of us, a lot of the challenge that we encounter in life is because we're trying to be on the throne. Daniel points out, Daniel shows us that God is in control. God is on the throne. And when we yield, when we worship, when we submit, that's when life doesn't always go well, but that's when life makes sense. Now, I know as well, as soon as I say God is in control, that might raise the question, well, Brian, what do you mean by in control? What about all this evil I see around me? What about the pain and what about the hardship? What about the trials and traumas I go through and my friends go through? Is God creating that or is God permitting that? What do you mean by God is in control? That's a great question, and that's something we're going to touch on as we journey through this book. And when we talk about control, we start to talk about, what well, consequences. Why am I going through these consequences? Why are these things happening to me? Is that because God is judging me? Or is it because it's the consequence of my own poor decisions? And of course, those are themes we're going to wrestle with as well. But ultimately, overarching the story of Daniel, we're going to land back in that place over and over and over again. God is in control. And then, if God is in control, well, how should we live? How do we live in the here and now with God on the throne? And that's what Daniel teaches us. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 1. I'm reading from the New International Version. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way through to 21, but I'm not going to read it in one go. We'll kind of pause and, and share some thoughts. So why don't you go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel begins like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You know, that opening verse sets the scene in human history. We know that the reign of Jehoiakim came to an end at 605 BC. That's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 24 through to 25. There's this earthly realm at play. There's these kings at play. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, this powerful king, this ruler over the Babylonian army and ruler over the Babylonian empire. And it's in the height of their expansionist exploits as they're kind of conquering and overthrowing and colonizing and spreading their power across the known world. And of course, as Daniel begins this, as Daniel sets it in a time frame within an historical context, we might kind of go, well, you see, there's earthly kings at play. There's this human power at work. But Daniel kind of points out, no. Nebuchadnezzar is not really in control. 
Because Daniel goes on in the very next verse. In verse 2, he says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. You see, so Daniel sees the human history at play. Daniel sees kind of the movements of earthly kings. But right up front, Daniel reminds us this is not about human power. This is about God in control. Nebuchadnezzar didn't win because of his earthly might and his military strategy. And Jehoiakim didn't lose because he was weak against that army. No, not at all. God gave. Jehoiakim lost because of God's intervention. And this shouldn't have come as a surprise to Jehoiakim. You know, we read in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 3 and 4, Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. God gave. In fact, three times in chapter 1, we read those words, God gave. Because ultimately, God is in control, and God is moving in a story that is so much bigger than just these earthly lives. God is moving for His righteousness. God is moving for His glory. God has repeatedly warned His people, the children of, of Judah. God has warned them to obey His commands or face the consequences of their sinful choices. And of course, they refuse. They keep worshiping idols. They keep doing their own thing. They keep sinning against God. And so God says, well, then I will do what I've promised to do. And we read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In fact, later on, when we get into Daniel chapter 9, which is a prayer of confession, David is confessing the sins of Judah and understanding that God is still holy. God is still in control. God is still just in doing what God has done. Now, I need to kind of pause right here for a moment because I'm, I'm worried some might hear what I am not saying. Because some of us might read that and go, well, is my life in a shambles today because God has given me over? A am I going through these experiences? Am I going through these hardships, through these trials because God is in some way punitively punishing me for some sin? No, I don't believe that for a moment because when I read through the whole of Scripture, I understand that we are covered by grace. You see, we live looking backwards and Christ came and freed us and delivered us. We live under the grace of God. But I do know this. We live in a fallen world where people are free to make terrible choices. We're free to make our own terrible choices. And often we live in the consequences of those poor choices. Don't turn around and say, well, this is happening to me because God is judging me. And even as I say that, I know some of us might go, well, what about things like cancer? What about unexpected tragedy and death? Is that God punishing me? How is God in control when those things happen? Well, my friends, there's no easy answer for that. And Daniel is going to stretch us as we go through that. But even there, we're reminded God is sovereign. God is on the throne. And we live in a fallen world where even creation is impacted by sin and the fall. And God is still on that throne and God will prove himself ultimately glorious. 
We don't always understand it. I certainly don't understand why some of these things happen to people around me. But as we read through Daniel, we need to understand this isn't punitive punishment. God is still on the throne. This isn't a Nebuchadnezzar that's here to overthrow me. But neither is it God here to judge me and destroy me. God is on the throne. God rules. And God allows these things to take place. And one day we will see and we will glorify and worship God when we fully understand. Daniel goes on. I'm going to pick it up from verse 2 again. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. You know, in in this era of human history, in in the ancient Near East, uh, belief in gods or the gods was simply a given. Uh, You would be hard-pressed to find somebody who did not believe there were gods at play. And so in this scene, Nebuchadnezzar carries off the symbols and the icons and those things that would display the God of the Israelites, the one true God. And and he takes those symbols and he puts them at the feet of his God in his temple. And it's, it's actually almost like that childish idea of, you know, my dad's stronger than your dad. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, my God is stronger than your God. And my God has defeated your God. And this is why I've brought those articles of your God and put them at the feet of my God. And as we read that, Daniel's already given us a hint of what's taking place behind the scenes. So there's this incredible irony. The only reason Nebuchadnezzar has been able to do this is precisely because God has allowed it to happen. Because God has given him this ability But God hasn't just given him the ability to take the symbols of the the children of God's God and put them into his temple. No, he's taken the people as well. This was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 39, verse 5 to 7, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So so why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? Why does Nebuchadnezzar take these youngsters? And the reality we understand is that Daniel was probably a young teenager when this happened. Why would Nebuchadnezzar take Daniel and his friends and some of the nobility, these youngsters, away and submerse them into or immerse them into Babylonian culture, teaching them the language of Babylon and the literature of Babylon? Well, that's the quickest way to change somebody's culture. Immerse them in your own. Teach them your language, your your literature. Teach them your way of thinking, your way of interpreting. Get them thinking and acting like us, and, and we won't have to fight with them. Get them to conform to our practices 
and our understanding. But of course, there's a little more here as well. Nebuchadnezzar has carried away these children of the nobility and, and those within the noble families because Babylon, uh, Babylon knows, all kings knew at that time, if we overthrow a tribe or a nation or a people and then we leave and we simply leave a couple of soldiers in place, well, those soldiers are probably going to get attacked and killed. And how do we get these people to conform and obey and, and be obedient and pay taxes and all those kind of things? Well, why not take their children at the threat of hostage situation? And if they don't behave, well, then their children will be executed. And so this is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He takes these children away and he trains them in Aramaic. In fact, interestingly enough, the book of Daniel, there are huge sections of Daniel written in Aramaic. It's the language of the world as opposed to the language of the Jews. Daniel and his friends are trained in divination, in astrology, in magic arts. And we might read that and kind of wonder, why on earth would somebody be trained in those things? Well, again, in this era, belief in God is a given. But gods, or the gods, they believed were involved in everything. Everything from crops to rain to fertile animals to children. Gods were involved in everything. And so for the rulers, they wanted to know, well, what is God saying? How does God want us to live? What does God want from us? Or, or maybe why are these bad things happening? And so these, these scholars, these youngsters are brought up to read the omens in a way. To try and figure out what do the gods want. And this is the beauty, beautiful image of the book of Daniel is over and over again, Daniel points back to, well, the one true God who is on the throne says this in answer to what does God want. And we read from verse 6. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And now, this one is largely lost on us. You know, for us, we, we pick our children's names because we either like the name, or maybe there's a family member that had that name, and so there we go, we name our child. But back in these days, your name was your identity. In fact, when somebody heard your name and understood what your name meant, they knew who you were. They knew what your personality was. Names were crucial in Daniel's era in, in these days. And that's what the person was. It wasn't just what they were called. That's who they were. And so Nebuchadnezzar understands this. And Nebuchadnezzar looks at their names, the names that ascribe back to God. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I will change your identity by changing your names. And so Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, gets changed to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel being one of the Babylonian gods. To Azariah, whose name is Yah or Yahweh is my help, he gets changed to Abednego, meaning a servant of Nabu. Again, going from Yahweh to one of the Babylonian gods. Hananiah means Yah has been gracious and Mishael means who is what God is. And they get named Shadrach and Meshach. And while scholars are debating exactly what they mean, there's consensus that both of those names point back to Marduk, one of the Babylonian gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar is doing his utmost to have the culture and the belief and the practices of these youngsters pulled out of them 
So he changes their names, changes their identity, gives them this rigorous education in Babylonian life and culture. But of course, he doesn't stop there. Because those might be easy to resist against. There's one more way to change people. One more way to get people to conform into how you want them to act and think and live. And that's a life of luxury and opulence. Nothing quite like full tummies and wealthy living to dull one's senses to who they really are. If we go back to verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. You know, there was a, an incredible practice during these days. The kings of Babylon, and because of their belief in the gods, and, and they believed they were prosperous and advancing because the gods were helping them. Well, the kings of Babylon would offer food to those gods. And of course, you didn't want to offend or insult your gods, so there would be these opulent spreads with just every delicacy and everything available, rich choice food, good hearty rich wine, and everything is placed before the gods. And this is what I, I find uh, kind of entertaining almost, is their belief was they would offer all this food to God, and the gods would eat whatever they want, and whatever is left over the king could have. Of course, it should be self-explanatory that no Babylonian king ever went hungry. They had good food. And so Daniel and his friends are offered this food, this rich, choice, delicious food. So what did Daniel do? Well, most of us already know this. Let's read from verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. And so Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. You know, when I read through this, I'm kind of forced to ask, why does Daniel resist at this point? You know, why does Daniel allow all the other things to happen? And now all of a sudden, Daniel kind of digs his heels in and says, no, I don't want that food. You know, one possible answer is they couldn't control the events. They couldn't control this new education they were getting. They couldn't control being renamed. But they could control what they physically put in to their own bodies. And, you know, as we read this, this isn't a public act. The king certainly doesn't know. Nobody else knows. Only the God who's put in place of looking after them, only the God knows this. But they know, and God knows. But why? Why would Daniel do this? Why would Daniel and his friends kind of decide, no, we only want vegetables? Well, perhaps... There's an element of an act of faith. Judah sinned and Judah was punished. 
the nation of Israel collapsing. And so uh, Daniel and, and his friends go, well, that happened. We won't. We will not sin. God will care for us and keep our identity as his children. Daniel and his friends are saying, we are not going to be conformed to the pattern of this Babylonian world. We will worship and trust Yahweh. You know, there's a a sense of Daniel and his friends said, okay, this is something small. But in this small act, we can prove faithful. And we can leave the results to God. So what happened? Well, we read in verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the God took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. You know, in this instance, for Daniel and his friends, as God will show the story, as God will reveal himself in control, in this instance, their faith and their trust is rewarded. They're proved faithful in the small things. And it's rewarded. And we can see the answer immediately in verse 17. How are they rewarded? Well, verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time, set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned him, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. These youngsters, by now kind of mid to late teenagers, The king finds no equal in all of his kingdom to these youngsters. Why? Well, because Daniel answers in this passage. In verse 17, God gave. It drives home the theme of chapter 1 and the theme of the whole book. God is in control. Nebuchadnezzar has no clue what's been happening behind the scenes. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know about their food and how they've been eating vegetables and trusting God. Nebuchadnezzar believes it's his school, it's his way of influencing them and inculcating them. This is what's given these youngsters these abilities. But Daniel and his friends know the truth. God is in control. God has given the knowledge. And because God has given, God has given so much more than any other place could possibly give. And so they were smart Smarter than all the others. They weren't smart in their own right. They were smart because God gave. And then the chapter finishes with this short verse. Verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now again, you and I might just skim over that verse and think, ah, well that's nice. This is a powerful verse right here. That verse sets the date at 605 B.C., Sorry, sorry, verse 1 sets the date at 605 B.C. This verse, verse 21, sets it at 539 B.C. Daniel's ministry doesn't just outlast Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's ministry outlasts the Babylonian Empire. Babylon the Great has fallen. And Daniel is there through it until beyond the end. Daniel outlasts his conquerors. 
Why? Because God is in control. And Daniel proves faithful to his God. Powerful people like Nebuchadnezzar still exist. Powerful people like Nebuchadnezzar wield tremendous influence, even over individuals like Daniel. But ultimately, and sometimes mysteriously, God is sovereign and reigns over all. Sometimes we might look at a story like this and and we might think we 